So I say my name and okay. Hello and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller and my guest today is... Hi, I'm Mauro Porto from Tulane University. Hello Mauro, it's great to see you. We've just had 10 minutes of gossip and that was really fun. I mean, sorry, high-level consultations. <laughs> and it's it's wonderful to see you. You're a, a long-standing friend, comrade and colleague of mine from whom I always learn a very great deal. So, Mauro, my first question for you is to ask what's dynamizing, propelling, holding back, annoying, troubling, interesting you these days? Thank you, Toby. Thank you for the generous introduction, but also for the invitation. It's always a privilege to have you as an interlocutor and has always been very productive to me. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. Well, I think in the last few years, my main motivation has been this need to understand what has been become known as the rise of the far right globally, but of course, the specific phenomenon of the rise of Bolsonaro to the presidency in 2008, and what that meant to Brazilian politics and society. Excuse me. So that has been, I was um, quite surprised when that conservative rebellion took place because I was witnessing my networks of family members and friends uh, joining with great enthusiasm um, this political movement that supported a candidate that was so openly authoritarian. So that puzzled me. How could people in my network of middle-class family members and friends join with such energy that conservative rebellion? So that has been really puzzled me. And, and of course, we can talk later about the current project uh, because the first set of questions led to my new book which came out came out last year which called which is called mirrors of whiteness and my new project focuses specifically on understanding the inequalities in brazil and i have found in my previous research that few institutions explain those inequalities better than the place of paid domestic work in uh, creating and reinforcing gender, class, and racial inequalities in Brazil. So my new project is all about uh, paid domestic work, and, you know, um, and the centrality of that in in Brazilian society. So those are some of the questions that I have been mm. thinking about lately. Big questions indeed, and I really appreciate your introducing Mirrors of Whiteness, a wonderful book a fantastic book about Jair Bolsonaro and the tentacles, so we say, of his support. Can I ask you whether you've come to any conclusions about why loved and cherished people in your life signed up for an, an out-and-out racist and insurrectionist? I mean, not just authoritarian, but in favor of military coup activity. Yeah, well, that's the thank you for the um, mentioning of the book. And um, yeah, that's up to the reader to decide if I have. Ah, <laughs> oh, they have to buy it. That's what you're telling us. They yeah, have to buy the book to find out who did up it. The reader to decide if the, my answer is satisfactory. But I thought that my journey was quite illuminating. Uh, it was also a personal journey. So I stopped to think about that issue. And I started to understand that uh, my positionality as a white middle-class man when I grew up in Brazil could have served me well in understanding the nature of the conservative rebellion. Uh, however, um, as the critical studies of whiteness show, right, um, whiteness is one of the features of whiteness as an ideological perspective is its invisibility, right? We never problematize whiteness. But I came to understand that 
we're speaking not uh, I came to understand that the key social bases of Bolsonaro support in Brazil came from the urban traditional middle class. That was the you know the social basis of that rebellion. And and you cannot and I came to understand that you cannot understand Brazil's middle class without understanding its intersection with racial hierarchies. So the and and the notion was that I the uh, the point that I developed a lot in the book is that in the Brazilian case it's abs- absolutely impossible to separate whiteness and middle class identity right class and race have uh, intersected from the start right so in the process of the formation of Brazilian middle and upper classes racial barriers have been extremely important in establishing uh status and distinctions and and power uh and what i um so and and when i stopped to think about it i started to understand why the middle class was so resentful and that they had to do with policies implemented during the center left administrations of the workers party most notably Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, Lula, who is back to the presidency for a third term. But in his first two terms, he uh, established a series of policy changes that led to what I call in the book a a real status panic among middle-class Brazilians. And two policies were particularly significant. One was the expansion of affirmative action for college admission that was very significant in that period. And second was the extension of labor rights to domestic workers. So these and other policy changes really generated anxiety uh, in a social class that had historically relied on those mechanisms to reproduce itself. So until the early 2000s, the white middle class has almost a monopoly of access to higher education. That gets break and uh, no, transformed and, uh, in the 2000s. And the same with domestic workers. For, for since its inception, right, the urban middle classes have relied on a mass of underpaid and exploited black and brown women, mostly, who uh, liberated them for manual work, including the domestic tasks in their households, and enabled them to succeed professionally and socially uh, based on the exploitation of that labor. So when uh, when those, and I use Weberian categories to describe those mechanisms as social closure mechanisms that create uh, the middle class as a status group, that comes to see itself defined by access to those um, privileges. Uh, When those mechanisms of reproduction of status are undermined by social political change, my argument is that urban middle, the traditional middle class um, uh, springs into action and takes over the streets in 2015 and 16, demanding the impeachment of President Rousseff. And that mass protest movement culminates with the election of Bolsonaro in, in 2018. So that's um, a big part of the argument of the of the book. And it's interesting here in that we might think of Lula as originally a man of the left, but mindful of what had happened to progressive presidencies in Latin America, specifically Salvador Allende in Chile, but others too, he was very careful not to frighten international financial markets in his times in office, not to frighten the United States. He focused on domestic reforms that were not about state ownership. And yet even that was unacceptable to this powerful domestic group. And I guess one element that's, I think, still true and relevant probably here 
about higher education is that in Brazil, unlike in, for example, the United States, private higher education, tertiary education is actually not of very high quality and is not where the white middle class chooses to send its evil spawn. It's rather the public sector of higher education that's of high status and quality and that was being opened up. Is that fair to say? Oh, completely. One of the key structuring of inequality in Brazil, right? Institutions of gen that generate inequality in one of the most unequal societies in the world, right? Brazil is one of the most unequal societies in the world, is the uh, stratified educational system. So that for, for a long time in Brazil, to get access to a public university, and public universities in Brazil are generally of better quality and are completely free of charge, right? They are free and of a higher quality. So for, for a very long time, to have access to higher education, to public higher education, uh, you needed to pass the entry exam. And and if you look at middle and higher and high schools, um, it's the opposite, right? The private schools, predominantly Catholic schools, offer better quality and prepare the students, position themselves much more strongly to pass the entry exams. And of course, they are very expensive and, and most Brazilians are excluded from that private educational system. So this was a very um, unfair uh, system where those who could, as my parents did, right? Who, those who could put their kids in private, middle, and high schools had much greater chances of entering public universities that are completely free and of a higher quality. Uh, so, and this was, the college diploma in Brazil has always been seen as a marker of middle class status. And when that gets, you know, there is a sense that that mechanism is being eroded, right? That creates what I call in the book, this significant status panic that's a result itself of resentment that builds over time. Uh, but in terms of Lula, and you are absolutely right, that, that was all his bet was on a moderate uh, political project that did not um, touch major structural problems, right? And in the book, I explore the many ways in which Lulismo, as a form of uh, moderate political reformism, is partially to be blamed by the, um, the creating the conditions for the rise of Bolsonaro. So just one example, right? So one of the projects of Lula was to project Brazil internationally, and his fight for a permanent seat in the UN Security Council. And the way he thought he would do that is by hosting mega sports events like the 2014 World Cup and the 2016 Olympic Games. And he invested huge amount of resources and uh, and to host these events, which were perceived in Brazil as um, overspending resources for in a country that lacked basic means of providing good health, public health, public education. Uh, so, and as we would soon learn, um, in 2013, you have this mass movement protesting uh the rise of in the price in the cost of public transportation but also protesting uh, the huge public investments in these mega sport events right there was a, a movement of people who were really unhappy with how the government was giving showing its priority in terms of pleasing FIFA and spending mil billions in infrastructure projects to host to renovate or build stadiums rather than providing decent health and education, that would culminate with the massive demonstrations of June 2013 that had a devastating impact on the popularity levels of President Rousseff. 
and would soon contribute to the crisis that uh, culminated with her impeachment in 2016. So you can see that, you know, uh, instead of addressing the structural factors that were still causing uh, a lot of low-income Brazilians to feel stuck in structural conditions that were, prevented them from fully um, uh, overcoming poverty. And uh, so in that one example is exactly the low quality and high cost of public transportation in Brazil. So uh, so those were some of the policy failures of Lulismo as a moderate kind of reformers. That... I wish he'd spoken to us, Mauro, because we could have told him, A, an economic crisis will come along that will destroy the temporary prosperity provided by local reforms based on Brazil's latest boom. And B, the Men's World Cup of Football and the Olympic Games are always stupid investments by governments that always cost more than they should and rarely provide any serious infrastructural facilities for the pleasure of workers and ordinary people on an ongoing basis. But he didn't ask us, Mal. Yes, they, he should. He should. And of course... Waiting. On top of that, you add that the mega construction companies have were well known for being uh, some of the most important political donors in Brazil and also for their strong corruption schemes to get governmental contracts. So you are, you know, directly in public spending to mega construction projects to an industry that was known for corruption. And of course, several scandals broke up about the role of those construction companies in those mega projects. Projects. So no no surprise there, right? I don't know if I told you this, Mauro, but when I worked in Colombia, the only way to get paid, the only way to get your salary from the private university where I was working was to open an account with one of the key bankers involved with that scandal, yeah. which wasn't only Brazilian, it really was right across South America, wasn't it? And at a, at a billion, billion dollar level of corruption. Yes. Um, so those were some of the mistakes of yeah. the reformism of Lula that contributed to the crisis. Yeah. But it just shows you that even when the left tries to be well-behaved in the eyes of the middle class, it still get, gets everything wrong in the sense of trying to make ongoing improvements. Um, I want to take you back to the book, if I may, Mauro. There's a, a very moving part when you talk about how your parents became white just prior to your birth. And this resonated with me because my parents became middle class just prior to my birth. And this shows, I think, how race, which obviously lots of people know, but it's so true in the Brazilian context or in the Latin American context, is not just about color and because it's so intricated with class, but also, as you explain in the book, with geography. Your parents committed the cardinal Brazilian crime of originating in the Northeast, which means you're not white in the eyes of the elite, right? Correct. So this is very, yeah, interesting because I found when I was trying to answer those fundamental questions and developing this book project, yeah, I found the key. I found in critical whiteness studies a major source of inspiration. Mm. And, mm -hmm. um, and those studies not only highlight whiteness as a standpoint, ideological perspective from which white people understand themselves, the others, and society at large. Yeah. But also they saw that it's a that whiteness is highly complex as a social phenomenon, as a as a social identity. So Patricia Pinho, for example, one of the leading scholars in whiteness studies in Brazil, speaks of degrees of whiteness, right? Mm. 
Uh, Leah Shukman also identifies how class and gender differences intersect in um, the formation of the identity of Brazilian whites. So you're absolutely right. Uh, in Brazil, you know, um, you have the regional inequality of having a process of urbanization and industrialization that was highly concentrated in the south, in the southeast, uh, while the northeast remained predominantly agrarian and poor. So Brazil's rapid process of urbanization and industrialization that was co comparatively in global terms very happened very fast. So for you to have an idea, in 1950, two-thirds of Brazilians were living in rural areas. By the two decades later, it was the opposite. Two-thirds of them were living in the cities. This huge migration flow came mostly from the Northeast, like poor people seeking for better living conditions. And that included my father, who left the state of Paraíba in the Northeast to live in Rio and try a better life. And he worked many manual jobs. And because uh, Northeasterners are poor, lack the cultural capital of the Southern elites, and have more indigenous blood or are perceived to have more indigenous blood than others, they are not perceived as white even when light-skinned, right? And my father was you know, one example of that because they lack those class uh, and regional markers of mm. middle-class status. Uh, and he, and also because he was working class, a my internal migrant. But as I tell in the introduction of the book, in the fifties he gets his first middle class job. He works for the federal government, and he goes to build the new capital, Brasilia, in the late fifties. And as it always happens, what are the key markers here of middle class identity, right? He becomes, he himself starts, and, and us as a family also start to rely on the exploitation of the cheap labor of women, mostly from the Northeast, who worked in a household as domestic workers. So when I was growing up, we had always a full-time domestic worker living in the house, right? And the same thing because my of my parents' new middle-class status, I was able to go to private Catholic schools, middle school and high school. And my brother and I, who were born in this new phase when my family was middle-class, were able to get into the best public university in town, which was uh, completely free of charge, right? So these markers of the presence of a domestic worker and access to higher education, right? Clearly signaled that my family had entered a middle-class status that was, well, that most Brazilians, including most migrants from the Northeast were, did not have access to. And um, so that, and, and, and therefore there are very, in other words, uh, when, people be, become public functioners in the Northeast and move to the capital, get a middle-class job, they can pass as white in the local context, right? But if that very family gets a job in Sao Paulo, Brazil's largest, largest metropolitan area, they will not necessarily pass as white, right? So this is all tied uh, to regional contexts that are very important to understand racial yeah. hierarchies in Brazil. Yeah. And Mauro, something we haven't touched on, but is an important part of your book, is the question of the media. You write in the book about a, a magazine, you write about a novella, and you write about the media in general. Because, in, amongst many other things, you're a political communication scholar. Uh, I'm now an expert on this because I started teaching it for the first time 10 days ago. So I know 
everything. But to celebrate my first day teaching it, I did a podcast with Lance Bennett, and uh, I have done two recently with Michael Deli Carpini, one with him and Bruce Williams. So I now know everything, right? Uh, you know that experience of being either a week ahead of the students or a week behind. <laughs> so I'm far from an expert on this, despite being paid to teach it. Tell us, if you could, the importance of the bourgeois media as reporting information factually, but also the importance of things like the novella to the rise of Bolsonaro and his gang. Yes, thank you for that question. Yeah, my recent trajectory could be seen. Uh, um, I have always been a political communication scholar, right? Um, that has been the history of my work and research. However, I didn't find in frameworks coming from political communication the most useful analytical categories. <laughs> No kidding. <laughs> and that has to be, for example, with the fact that the those political communication scholars in Brazil, as one might expect, are themselves overwhelmingly white. Mm. And they themselves are middle class. And they themselves naturalize those mechanisms of social distinction that reproduce the middle class. So they all have domestic not less and less middle-class Brazilians are having the conditions to have a full-time maid, but a lot of them have their maids and a lot of them, in, you know, uh, go to pop or uh, to private middle high schools and then get access to public universities and so on. In other words, a lot of the process I look in the book are not really visible, are not in the radar mm. of traditional political communication. Yeah, yeah. And that can be expressed, for example, or communication research in general. And that can be expressed, for example, in a very popular telenovela that was broadcast in this key historical moment in Brazil, right? There was a telenovela that I analyze in detail in the book called Cheias de Charme. It's about three. It's It was celebrated because it was a telenovela that had three domestic workers as protagonists. And at that point, that was, you know, um, 2012, at, at that point, uh, a lot of scholars praised the telenovela for representing what became known in Brazil, it's a terrible term that I criticize in the book, the new middle class. So when millions of people were lifted out of poverty during Lulismo's policy changes, uh, uh, a lot of scholars and economists trying started calling that group the new middle class. <clears throat> so and and this emerging social groups that were living out of poverty, and a lot of scholars were you know looking at this telenovela and saying that global the dominant media group in Brazil, who I which I have written extensively about was catering to these new groups and was representing their ascension. And when I went to you know, watch closely the more than 160 episodes of that telenovela, I immediately realized that the whole question of paid domestic work and middle-class domesticity was represented in the telenovela from the most the strongest possible terms from the perspective of the white middle class in ways that uh, reinforced whiteness as a, as a social perspective. So the title of the book is Mirrors of Whiteness. And I think that concept is, I hope, a contribution to the study of the role of media in contemporary um political conflict because I define the mirrors of whiteness as spheres of representations that allow white people to legitimate their power while softening, softening or hiding the wretchedness of the inequalities and injustices that such power generates. So this is a pattern of representation that incorporates the other, right? The domestic worker, right. 
right. formerly poor, only to reinforce the hegemonic position of whiteness. And that's a point that I insist, it's not new, but I insist in the book is that more visibility to subaltern groups can work to reinforce the dominant ideological perspective rather than to challenge it. So a lot of people miss the fact that, yes, there was this telenovela with uh, domestic workers as, as protagonists, but only uh, they were represented only in ways that reinforced traditional racial and gender hierarchies, and especially in terms of race. The, uh, so um, uh, I don't know how, how much you want to, you know, uh, expand that point, but I could give examples of the many ways in which the telenovela, the the ways in which the white class exploits this mass of underpaid, mostly black and brown women, are legitimated by the telenovela, right? Are explained in terms that um, soften the role and the involvement of middle-class Brazilians in generating inequality. And one a quick example is the mantra of the generous patroa, right? Or the female boss in Brazil is, is known as patroa. Um, so and in the telenovela, you have these mirrors that allow middle-class people to recognize their generosity and disguise the economic and social exploitation of mostly black and brown women uh, as a generous uh, form of employment that protects them from a destiny that would be supposedly worse if they were not employed in the houses of middle-class families. So that's uh, one, one way that I demonstrate that concept in the book. The other is, uh, so that was the telenovela. And then I look at news coverage of affirmative action by Brazil's most important news magazine, which is Veja. So I look at seven years of coverage. And there again, I identify the role of the media as mirrors of whiteness, of reporting on a key social problem from the ideological perspective of the white middle class in ways that not only opposed affirmative action, but also contributed to generate major anxieties among middle-class publics about the alleged negative effects that affirmative action would have to their own identity, to their own life as middle-class families, right? So, uh, so I thought that that concept of mirrors of whiteness was very interesting to understand the ideological role of the media in this key historical moment. Just going back to the novella for a moment, Mauro, when I read the book, I couldn't help thinking of Alfonso Cuaron's film Roma, mm -hmm. Mexican film, of course, that is about his childhood in the neighborhood next to where I was living in Mexico City, and uh, it is in part a story about indigenous people, as you know. And he was heavily criticized for this, but the fact is, in my view, having indigenous women on screen, and unlike some criticisms, which are inaccurate, speaking their own languages, as well as the language of the invader, is remarkable because it's not something you get in contemporary or earlier Mexican cinema. So one could review it, one could regard it as repressive tolerance per the novella you're describing, or one could say there is something here that needs to be investigated that, yes, undoubtedly involves possessive whiteness, but also is giving space to what had hitherto been invisible labor in media representations and the space for telling stories. So I'm wondering how you'd respond to that, in a sense, counter-argument. Yeah, sure. I think 
the best tests to any analytical framework or theory is to present to it its most difficult challenges. <laughs> right? Yeah. And Roma is one of them because it's a movie that I truly enjoyed. It's yeah. magnificent cinematography. It's yeah. beautifully done. And you are absolutely right. It's not for me to say to the indigenous Mexicans that uh, watching and themselves on the screen is a irrelevant social change, right? In the, when you consider how white the Mexican media is, right? And having an indigenous actress playing uh, a social category that's marked by invisibility, right? A domestic worker, indigenous woman. Uh, it's not to me to say that that's irrelevant. But what I think it's important is to question to what extent that do those same representations truly undermine uh, hegemonic ways of seeing the world. And the problem remains that, you know, the, the movie remains, uh, even though it does a, some, in key moments, a key role in representing the, the oppressive nature of domestic life um, that domestic workers have to face, it builds this very problematic uh, equivalence, you know, when the only intersection that you see played strongly in the movie with, is with gender. And you see this alliance between the patroa and the domestic worker uh, and the family hug at the end as a kind of representation that highlights that female solidarity, right? While not truly problematizing the economic and social exploitation by that indigenous woman, by that white woman. So if you want to th think of a film that would present a more complex representation of that issue, I would strongly recommend uh, Chiara Zalavalta, um, which has been translated into English as The Second Mother. It's a Brazilian movie. Uh, that portrays an upper middle class family and the, from the perspective of the domestic worker and how the social racial hierarchies of middle class domesticity crumble when the strange daughter of the domestic worker comes to live with them, right? Uh, so from my perspective, that movie is a much more powerful critique of the ways in which white middle-class Latin Americans rely on the exploitation of domestic workers than Roma was in that specific, from that perspective, specific yeah. perspective. So I strongly recommend that movie and I think it resonates a lot with my argument in the book. Absolutely. Something that this made me think of is Nuevo Orden, New Order, the Mexican film that couldn't get distribution on Mexican television. And I heard this from a, an insider because when it was shown to the hegemones of the major networks, they said it would stimulate a revolution and they couldn't yeah. show. And it's when there's a fantastic wedding feast for the white second upper middle class, the oligarchy, and the indigenous uh, workers at the wedding go on a bloody splurge and murder everybody who's light-skinned that they can find. It's astounding. Um, and there's something in that fear of a term that really resonates with me. It makes me think also of the African-American crime novelist Chester Himes. Uh, and Himes had a pair of black detectives, as, as you'll probably remember, Mauro who do the work of the cops. And then in his neglected, only, only I think posthumously published novel, they suddenly turn around and decide to kill all the white people they can find. Yes. And there's an extraordinary revolutionary potential, albeit horrifying. It's, I mean, Nuevo Orden is horrifying, the Chester Himes work is horrifying, of 
a, a turn away from the vision of the eternally loyal Indigenous subject, deciding that their current employers basically do represent the conquest and the enslavement of centuries earlier. Yes. So I agree, there's a lot to be done with the figure of the loyal but somehow or other miraculously present um, subaltern yes. subject. I, I quite agree. Yeah, since if you look at Brazilian, not Brazilian, Latin American history, right, a key fear of the Creole elites, of the elites that were either European or descendants of the white Europeans was was the specter of the Haitian Revolution, yeah. right? The fear that black and brown people could rise and destroy uh, that that political system. So, uh, even celebrated national independence re- heroes like Bolivar, right? Um, uh, spoke openly about his main fear that his main fear was a pardocracia, the possibility that black and indigenous people could rise and destroy the political order, right? And, and the specter was always Haiti. Yeah. Um, and any, you have critical race theorists that apply those the same fear to understand the contemporary processes like the rise of Bolsonaro. So you have João Costa Vargas, at UC Riverside, and he wrote an article with Jaime Alves that talks about the specter of Haiti as a part of the backlash, the the anti-blackness of Bolsonaro's political movement uh, as a reaction to black ascension, right? To uh, formerly poor black and brown Brazilians who are now occupying more spaces, who are now... Uh, going to college and who are now traveling by plane, who are now eating the restaurants that the white middle class used to monopolize on the weekends, right? So we have all this black relative black ascension that resonates with this historical fears that whites have about. Uh, Yeah, so I think that's key to understanding not only the history of Latin America, but what's going on more contemporarily. Beautifully put. And of course, Bolivar had this idea that there would be a magical blend of the civilization of the Spanish and the Portuguese with the incredible violence and fortitude of indigenous Latin Americans. Yeah. So, Speaking probably, of Bolivar, there is, I found, you know, uh, some interesting letters. Uh, he has a letter at the end of his life saying that his main regret in life was to execute the black and brown generals that were accused of treason, including um, Padilla, the, the head of the Navy of the Independence War. So actually, you know, Bolivar executed a lot of the black uh, generals and leaders of of the Independence Wars, and he would come to the end of his life regretting that decision and showing that... uh, Yeah, well, you know what? Too little, too late. Yes. But I think one of the things before... we will finish shortly because you're a man of many responsibilities, but a quick note for those who are not aware. Often when one thinks of the slave trade in the Americas, one thinks of the British into what's now the United States, but actually the Portuguese and the Spanish imported many more slaves and the Spanish bought many people from the Portuguese. And really, the, the presence of slavery was greater numerically in uh, South America than it was in, in North America. Just a point worth making. And of course, exactly. uh, manumission occurred in Brazil only in 1888. So sometime later than uh, even the British stopped slaving in 1834. And of course, it Slaves were given constitutional recognition in the U.S. in the 1860s. But uh, it's very important to realize the recency of these transformations and to decenter, not to forgive, but to decenter the British as if they were the key players in this in the Americas.
Yeah. Yeah. Two key facts here. Brazil was the last nation in the Western Hemisphere to abolish slavery formally in 1888. But also it's estimated that about half of the human beings that were taken out of Africa to be sent to the Americas as slaves went to Brazil. Yeah. So it's a, it was a massive, um, you know, and astounding uh, process of human uh, degradation, exploitation that is absolutely central to understand Brazil from the start. Yeah. So, Prof, as I say, we, I know you've got to go. I've got one question for you remaining, if I may. Sure. As does the podcat. You can see the podcat. He is a Basque militant, albeit a Pacific one. His original name, his birth name is Chinguri, which is Basque for ant, which I think is a silly name for a cat. What do you think, Prof? <laughs> yeah, we have a similar cat at home, so uh, oh. yeah, we know their personality. It fits their personality. <laughs> well, my younger daughter renamed him Naranja because he's orange. Oh, ours is called Mars. Oh, okay. The oh. reddish planet. Yes, the reddish planet. <laughs> Although many critics have argued that he is becoming more and more vanilla colored. <laughs> so, um, Prof. Mauro, my last question is this before handing over to you so that you can add or subtract anything from what we've discussed or engage in further product placement of your work. My last question is this. I'm... A student, and I'm at, God help me, the International Communication Association Annual Conference or the International Association for Media and Communication Research Annual Conference, what used to be called the CIA and the KGB of Communication Studies. The CIA, by the way, still recruits at ICA. And I'm, I go up to you, I say, Professor Porto, I've just read the Whiteness book. I've read your other book from, I guess, about a decade earlier or more, 10 or 15 years earlier. I want to study political communication, but I get the sense that you think most of it's not worth knowing because you've written about things like telenovelas and you've written from a perspective of the cultural critique of whiteness. Should I engage myself with the world of U.S. communication studies as incarnated in political communication? Or should I run away to a heterodox department and do my own thing? Well, that's, we, we're becoming professional counselors here, so yes, uh, well, my bit. <laughs> you're going to get uh, your choice of Caiperinho <laughs> or anything else in return for this advice that's been solicited? I would say, you know, pick the program that you think best fits your intellectual interests. But don't forget that to understand the world we live in and the nature of the profound crisis we are facing, and, uh, you know, and things are not looking, looking very good right now, and we need people to you know, that can shed new light on these problems that we're facing. Uh, you know, don't be stuck by disciplinary boundaries and really think on the ways in which if you go to a communication program, you benefit from, you know, going to courses and reading about critical race theory or critical gender and sexuality studies or mm. and because I think this interdisciplinarity is is more required than ever. Uh, it's it's really, and that, that I thought that you know, uh, when I try to understand the Bolsonaro phenomenon, I clearly uh, came to the conclusion that the frameworks from political communication research were not enough. That doesn't mean that they are irrelevant to understand uh, that phenomenon. In fact. One of the key f aspects of this new far-right movement around the world is the shrewd and very you know, intensive use of media and technology to uh, advance their, their, themselves as political movements. 
And the notion that you can understand them without reference to the use of media and technology is obviously... Uh, so you cannot do without media studies and new media studies, but they might not be sufficient to understand the nature of the profound crisis we are living through. Spoken like a true doctoral graduate of the University of California, San Diego Communications, and a true chair of the Department of Communications at Tulane. <laughs> yeah. And I should say, for those interested in Latin American studies, there really is nowhere better in the United States than Tulane uh, because of the vast array of remarkable scholars operating in area studies and thinking about many of the questions that you've raised. So, Prof, are there things we haven't touched on that you'd like to mention? No, I just very briefly wanted to talk that, you know, as a coming out of that book is now my new project, mm. uh, which is emphasizing the centrality of paid domestic work in Brazilian society. And what I have been doing lately is I have been interviewing six domestic workers from Brasilia, Brazil's capital, over time. I did already three rounds of interviews with them before and after the last presidential election. Uh, and the live stories are, in my opinion, uh, profoundly illuminating about the nature of the political social conflict that we are witnessing in Brazil and elsewhere. So I'm looking forward to to developing this new project in a new book project, maybe that will emphasize on the narratives of domestic workers themselves about, you know, um, their lives and the lives of the middle class families they work for, which is very interesting. So that's the the beginnings of the new project. That's exciting. And when we were last together, I think you'd just begun that first round of interviews. So uh, I really appreciate the time you've given us, Mauro Porto. I say this to so many people, but it's true of so many people, but especially of you. I learned so much from your work. Uh, I mean, inevitably because of my prejudices and interests, it sheds light for me on other countries that I know better because there is so much that is both uniquely Brazilian but also important universally in what you do. And I think that the unique mixture of, you know, we haven't mentioned Carlito Marx, but Marxism is there all the time in what you do, but also of Weber, a great theorist and perverted in the United States by being turned into someone from the center or the right when he was, of course, a socialist. But also the best of whiteness studies, you've concocted a frame of reference and a form of analysis that is absolutely remarkable. And thanks to your dad insisting you learn English <laughs> because <laughs> exactly. he knew it was the most dynamic language economically, right? He could yes. see that, right? A man with, with minimal education formally. Yeah, he was fifth grade education. Yeah, fifth grade education. Uh, but he could see yeah. Portuguese is fine, but there's this other monster, Yeah. right? Uh, exactly. you also... Thank you, Toby. It's always, you're always generous with your words, uh, but the people who know you know well and uh, are always astonished by how the intellection, the, the, the dialogue is productive. And that has been my case. I have always felt privileged to have you as an interlocutor. And thank you for inviting me for the podcast. It was great. Thank you.